Thank you guys for being here tonight. You can go ahead and open your Bibles uh, back to Hebrews. We will be covering, uh, trying to cover a lot of ground tonight. So it will be Hebrews, all of chapter 3, and we'll try to get through the first 13 verses of chapter 4. The reason why we're trying to cover so much is really the first six verses stick together really well, and then the next section is just long. Uh, verse 7 of chapter 3 all the way through the middle, almost end of chapter 4 is just one section. And the author is spending almost that whole time explaining one text from a psalm, from Psalm 95. So we, we really couldn't break it up very well. I'm sure you could find a way, but we're going to just try to go through a lot of this. If you want to text a question during this, you can text it to Ian's number, and he'll be sending some of those to us as well. If you have any questions or if something gets overlooked, uh, please feel free to do that. Okay, so remember... This letter, we don't know the author, is being written to a group of mostly, if not entirely, Jewish Christians. So these people grew up in Judaism. They know Judaism very well. The author clearly knows Judaism very well. And they've, they've come from Judaism into Christianity, Jesus being the fulfillment of all those things. And they are undergoing, at least they're at the beginning stages of persecution. And their temptation is to leave Jesus and go back to the protection of Judaism. Because remember, I think Fred mentioned this, somebody... Uh, Judaism had legal protection under the Roman Empire, and Christianity eventually did not. And so there was a little bit more of a safety net in Judaism, they felt like. And so the author is comparing Jesus to lots of things in the Old Testament and showing what you're going to miss out on if you go back to Moses and leave Jesus the one Moses wrote about. And so uh, right now, if you look at 2.17, uh, just before the part Scott read, Talking about Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to save those who are being tempted. Now you see that word faithful in verse 17? He's the faithful high priest. That word spills over into the next chapter. And he's going to begin to contrast the faithfulness of Jesus that he just talked about with the faithfulness of Moses. And he's going to say, listen, Moses was generally faithful. But Jesus wasn't just more faithful. He was far superior to Moses. And that, that's what he'll start getting into here. So why don't, Scott, you want to start us with verse 1? And all of consider Jesus. I love this. We talked about this some last time, about considering Jesus. He emphasizes this multiple times in Hebrews. Based a few minutes on this topic of considering Jesus. Mark last time said it starts with desire. We need to desire to see Jesus. And one pastor picked up on that. He says it begins with desire, calls for concentration, requires discipline, requires time. So it begins with desire, then concentration, discipline, and time to, to focus on Jesus. And a couple, couple things. The first thing is, I use an illustration from, from my son's life. He's 17 months old, and right now he's obsessed with flags. He loves flags. He loves to go outside, and he loves to see and he's learning Spanish and English right now, and he's getting more Spanish than English. I'm basically his one English influencer, major English influencer. He's awake right now. I gotta, I gotta get English. So the word for flag in Spanish is bandera, and it's kind of a hard word for him to say, but he condenses that word. He just says, vita. That's his word for flag. And when he has, he has a strong desire to see flags, he has a strong desire to go outside. And when that desire is very strong, it doesn't really matter what else, unless it's food, I think. It doesn't matter what else, unless it's food, you can come to him and say, 
Hey, buddy, you want to play with your cars? Mika. You want to drink your water? Mika. You want to play with your wife? Mika. Mika. He, he just has this overarching desire to see the fly. He wants to go outside. And I just thought, this is how we should be with Jesus. He said, so much more. I was thinking, you could get up in the morning and have conversations with yourself. Should I go to social media? There should be that other voice. Jesus. Should I go and get something to eat? Jesus. Like, excuse me, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We should have this overarching desire to see Jesus, to consider Jesus, think on Jesus. Second thing, a practical way to do this, I, I'm still this from my dad in a sermon from, from years ago. He preached on this, and he stole it from a Puritan writer who, who, who basically said that we should use sort of the last 24 hours of Jesus' life and sort of use that as a timeline and think through the last 24 hours of Jesus' life throughout the day. Uh, for example, between 4 and 6 o'clock in the morning, Jesus was before Annas and Caiaphas and the mockery of the trial. Between 6 and 8, he was before Pilate. You can think about all that went involved there. 8 to 8.30, probably, he was carrying his cross. Uh, 9 o'clock, he was crucified. At 12 noon, there's darkness over all the land. And then 3 o'clock, he cries out, it is finished. So you just take you know, one of those pieces of his life. So when you're getting up in the morning, you're getting ready, it's 8.30. Then you think, oh yeah, this is the time where Jesus was carrying his cross. This is when he was crumbling under the weight of the cross. And Simon and Simon had to come and reflect on that. Or it's 9 o'clock, you're getting breakfast, and this is when Jesus was crucified. And it's 12 noon, you're going to get lunch. And this is when darkness was over all the land. Jesus is being, becoming sin for us, becoming cursed for us. And at 3 o'clock, you're getting an afternoon snack. You think, this is when Jesus Christ it is finished from the cross. And you, you pause and think about that. And then my dad said this. He, he had been thinking this way that week. And then he said he had, woke, he had awakened in the middle of the night. And he said he looked at the clock, and it was exactly 3 o'clock. And he said his first thought was, why am I awake? It's going to take me a while to fall back asleep, he said. But his second thought was, this is probably the time Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He paused, he reflected, he prayed, he turned back over and went to sleep. I thought, this is, a, this is a, just a wonderful, practical, helpful way wow. for us to consider Jesus, and we should desire to, to, to consider him. But I just thought that's a great way to just to think through his, his last 24 hours and just put it into your routine. Papa Fred, what do you think about all that? That's pretty helpful. That's amazing. I mean, I, I, when I, next time I wake up at 3 o'clock, <laughs> I need to think about the garden or something. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I think it's, it's just so easy to drift, like we talked about last week, uh, by not paying careful attention to what we've heard in Jesus. And so we begin to drift. And there are 10,000 ways to do that. But... Um, I mean, let's just, can we be honest here? I won't get into a, I'm not going to talk politics right now, but just since the whole COVID-19 thing, I mean, just, we are inundated with political left and right uh, perspectives. And I'm not saying that there's nothing to think about there. We should think through those issues. But isn't it true that those can become dominant in our day? Uh, when we're checking social media, it's always the right and the left hating each other. And there's always, you know, things are skewed and there's biases and we get caught up in that and we get sort of absorbed in those things and we can easily begin to drift from Jesus himself. Now, does Jesus care about political issues? Yes, and we should think about those with biblical wisdom, but we can get so caught up in, you know, what's the latest thing from this news channel or this talking head or whatever that we, we almost begin to sound worldly in the way that we're thinking about reality. And we're not thinking about Jesus alive at the right hand of the Father. Uh, th those kinds of realities need to always be the anchor and the foundation and the fuel of our life, even when we're thinking through uh, other issues. You know, thinking about what you just said about your your dad further, um, 
you know, uh, Beg, uh, I'm listening to Alistair's sermon on this, and he said, fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes. Focus. Um, and, and, and that's the way to focus, is to think about something like his agony in the garden or his crucifixion. And uh, thank you. If you look at 3.1 again, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Uh, I think this is the only time Jesus is directly called an apostle in the Bible. It's a pretty unusual title for Jesus. But you remember what the apostle word means? means to be sent, right? To be a sent one, sent on a mission. And uh, John's gospel is full of this, that the, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent the Son. And Jesus is the apostle in the sense of he has come on a mission from the Father to fulfill the Father's will. And he's also the high priest of our confession, what we believe, the gospel about him. Uh, he was faithful to him who appointed him, uh, middle of verse 2. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And so house here... Uh, can, you know, house can, can refer to a building like your home that you live in, but it can also refer to the people in that home. And that seems to be the emphasis here is the people of God. And Moses was faithful leading the people of God, but Jesus is far greater because uh, Moses is, is a servant, but Jesus is the son of God who actually created all the people of God and he created Moses. Uh, going back to chapter one, he has the same nature of God. Everything was made through him. And so yeah, he, he's far greater than Moses. He created Moses. That kind of puts you one up, you know, in the whole, like, who's greater, Moses or Jesus? Well, one of them made the other one, uh, and everybody else. So that kind of puts Jesus in a slightly higher perspective. If anyone's starting to fall back into following Moses in, in, in contradiction to Jesus, which Moses wouldn't want, uh, but here he says, well, clearly, Jesus is greater. He's the builder of the house. Uh, Moses was faithful leading the house, but, but Jesus has built the people of God. So some thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm just picking right up with, with that, basically reemphasizing that John Piper in his sermon. It was 1996 where the Olympics were going on, and he was, he was saying, there's a picture an imaginary conversation with a bunch of Olympians or, or all talking in the room, like, who's the, who's the greatest? And then Jesus is sitting over there quietly in the corner, and he said, one guy's like, I threw the javelin this far, and I threw the shot put this far, and I'm, I'm the best wrestler, or whatever. and they're all talking about it, and they, well, Jesus created all these guys. So it's like the end of the discussion, like Jesus is, is greater. Uh, for yeah, sure. This in no way, I mean, yeah, I think uh, first reading of Hebrews, you might think this is to denigrate angels or Moses or um, the other in subject matter, but this is just to uh, compare. And, and, uh, and Moses was the guy that he spoke to mouth to mouth, face to face. Few people uh, had that privilege, mm -hmm. but Moses did. So uh, it's just that Jesus is greater because he made him. Yes. And uh, you know, we're, a lot of us here love Charles Spurgeon from the last, from the 1800s, second half of that century. And uh, one of the things that makes Spurgeon powerful is not just his eloquence, but what made him so powerful. I think one of the reasons, and you, you may, if you go back and read Spurgeon, you may notice he does this more than you think. But I realized at a certain point that 
one of the reasons why I get stirred so deeply listening to him talk about Jesus is because he's always comparing Jesus to things. And it's not just Old Testament things. He'll, he'll compare your honoring the Lord with how he, you're loving the Lord with his love for you. And he'll say, we often forget the Lord, but he never forgets us. I mean, that's a comparison, but it's comparing our failure with Jesus's incredible faithfulness. You know, so over and over, Spurgeon will just do this, where he'll say, you know, the, the times that we should have been praying to him, he was interceding for us. And, and when we forgot about him, he was thinking of us. And in our worst moments, uh, he was shining and loving. And so comparing even our, ourselves to Jesus is a good thing to do, because it humbles us, and it makes you feel the wonder of his love when it's so undeserving, for, considering who we, uh, who we are. So if I can just move on for the sake of uh, how much we have to cover. Uh, on the topic of Moses, it's hard not to think about Moses' generation, which is leaving Exodus, uh, leaving through the Exodus, leaving Egypt. And where are they for 40 years? They are in the wilderness. wilderness. And uh, that wasn't the finest moment in the, in the history of the people of God. But he's going to zero in now on the people that Moses was leading during those 40 years. And I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of chapter 3. And he's quoting from Psalm 95 repeatedly here, uh, which uh, he tells us is a psalm of David. So uh, Hebrews 3.7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if, we, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let me just say a couple quick things. N number one, uh, at least some of us may have grown up in a culture of time where uh, moralizing the Old Testament was very popular. So it would be like, you know, I'm not really making fun of these things, but it was, everything was about learning a lesson from a character. So it was, you know, dare to be a Daniel, or like be like Moses, or like all these different series. You know, be like Abraham, or you might do a king study, and it was, this king was good, so be like this king. This king was bad, so don't be like that king. And there's a point to all that, but it got a little carried away, right? And we sort of lost the gospel. And then there was a recovery. The last 15, 20 years has been an emphasis on the gospel. But there's another opposite danger, and the opposite danger is we talk about the gospel to the point where we actually stop actually commanding people to do things, right? So it's like, you know, Jesus paid for it, so don't worry about obedience. Well, that's an opposite error, you see? So one side's just rules with no gospel. The other one is just gospel with no rules, right? And this, I just love the New Testament because they do both. They're, this is no question, this is moralizing from the Old Testament. They were in the wilderness, 
They didn't believe, they disobeyed, and they perished, and they never made it into the promised land. Don't be like that. That's a, that's a moralizing application of an Old Testament text. And then he's going to get to a gospel typology application in the next chapter from the same text. So it's a both and. It's not an either or. So we should study these characters and we should learn moral lessons from lives. Where they failed, where they succeeded, and we should apply moral lessons from the whole Bible to our lives. And not be embarrassed to do that. That's not legalism automatically. The New Testament does it. But we also need to bring Jesus and the gospel in as well, when appropriate and, and how appropriate, and those need to both be together. So he shows us how to do both in this text. And just a couple other quick things. Verse 7 is just tremendous. So remember, there's a thousand-year gap between when this psalm was written by David and when Hebrews was written. A thousand years. George Washington is way closer to you than that psalm was to this writer. You, you following here? That's a long time. A thousand years. And he does not say, therefore, as the Holy Spirit said. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says in the present tense. And I love that. So the Holy Spirit inspired David, and he could pick up a psalm, a random psalm. Psalm 95 is not a particularly well-known psalm to me. And he goes, that's the Holy Spirit, not who spoke. That's the Holy Spirit speaking in the present. So when we pick up the most remote psalm and we read it, or anything in Scripture, you are hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. It might be coming out of your mouth, but you are hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit because this is the Spirit speaking presently today. And, and I know we talk about this a lot, but there is always a hunger in the church to hear God's voice. And that hunger can become a very, it's a good desire, and it can become a very distorted desire because people often don't want to hear it here. They want to hear it somewhere else. And if we want to hear God's voice, the only sure place in this time in history that we are going to hear God speak is in Scripture. And so the Spirit is speaking present tense whenever the Bible is read in private or publicly. And that, that's a huge encouragement to dive into Scripture and to, and to learn. You know, I think that what something you just said about Hebrews, uh, the, you know, this is the most Old Testament, New Testament book we have. And I, and I love it that we, we, we're back and forth comparing. We're not unhitched. Mm -hmm. We're connected. And this is just showing the connection. Can I just say something about that? Um, yeah, so w when, when very popular preachers in the state of Georgia say to their tens of thousands of followers that we should, I'm just going to say the words, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And I, and I know people say, he didn't mean what he said. Oh, okay, I've, yeah, I've then why did he say it? Um, so so when, when, you, when, you go, when you listen to this, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. What's being said, and this is one of the most popular preachers in the Southeast uh, and, and has huge influence, that what they're saying is 76% of the Bible needs to be unhitched from, from your Christian faith. And um, I realize that we're not living in the Old Covenant era, but that does not mean the Old Covenant and the Old Testament are no longer God's Word today. The Holy Spirit says in the Psalms. So we're not under that era of redemptive history, but those words are just as inspired, and this book of Hebrews shows you they're just as relevant as they have ever been. Just because we're not living in the Old Covenant doesn't mean the scriptures of the Old Testament are not God speaking today. And if we're going to throw out three-fourths of the Bible, uh, maybe to get around some embarrassing parts, so-called, you know, to try to kind of get ourselves off the hook for certain so-called embarrassing moments in the Old Testament, which we shouldn't be embarrassed about. We should understand them appropriately. Uh, that's not a good me method, and, and uh, 
I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say this very directly. I'm quoting someone else right now, I don't, somebody else said this. If, if your pastor tells you to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, you should unhitch yourself from his ministry. Thank you. Scott doesn't say get unhitched from the Old Testament, though, so you should stay, <laughs> stay with Scott. Fred, you made me do it. <laughs> well, all right. But that's important, though. <laughs> it, is, it is extremely important. Extremely. I mean, the Spirit himself is speaking these very words, as, as, we, as you pointed out in verse 7, I guess it is. Um, I was just thinking about 13. Exhort. This is what we need to do. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. That, that's very convicting. That's, in fact, that's one of the warning, I guess it's the second warning section. Uh, and by exhorting, that means encouraging one another, speaking to one another, uh, coming alongside one another in our struggles with our faith. And uh, that's, that's really significant. That's one, that's one of the reasons that they got in trouble in the wilderness. They didn't exhort one another. Scott, you want to walk us through 12 to 14? Yeah, I can, let me just read them again, 12 to 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I, I, just, I just love how the author of Hebrews, is, he so deeply cares about them persevering to the end. Like, it's like it hurts him to think of even just losing one of them to, to unbelief. And I think that's partly why he gives this Psalm 95 to show they, had all, they saw the exodus, like they saw God doing all these amazing things. It's astonishing that they would fall away and fall away so quickly. So he so wants them to persevere. One of the ways we persevere then is we, we've got to exhort, exhort each other every day, the importance of community. Uh, so much that could, could be said on this. Uh, I just take that idea of today, uh, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. A couple people drew this out. Piper said, you will never get another today. Today is an unrepeatable gift. Feel soft towards the mercies of today. Oh, how precious is today. And Tom Schreiner said, every day matters to the author. There is no such thing as a routine day without significance. I'm just thinking about today. Like, you will never have another today. Like, with, with the unique circumstances of today where you are exactly this age. Like, we want to snatch up the time. We want to redeem the todays that God gives. We're not promised tomorrow. And I, so we just, we want, time is a gift from God. Even your thing that you talked a couple weeks ago about praying for discernment, how best to use our time. I thought that's such a good way to pray. We so need to be praying that we would best use our time. But certainly one of the ways we use our time well is by encouraging each other, getting alongside other believers. And when we get out of the body, we just, we just suffer so bad. I think R.C. Sproul said that you take a pile of hot coals, you put them all together, you take some tongs, you take that one coal away. He said you watch that one coal, it'll just cool off rapidly while all the rest are, are raging hot. And that's the idea. If we get out of community, we're going to cool off. We're going to drift away from the things of God. One, one guy said it's worth inconvenience. It's worth giving up some leisure time. It's worth real sacrifice to, to gather with other Christians. And I think all of us probably know this, but I'm thinking back to the beginning of our church when we had discussion groups every Thursday, and I, I really feel like 
People were sacrificing leisure time. Every Thursday, if they could be there, people were there every week. And it was amazing. It's like, even if you didn't want to go, even if I was wrestling, we were wrestling with not going, we would always say, you know, it's going to be worth it to go. And every time it was, like every single time, it, there is great benefit to being with the people of God, praying with each other. I think about Jose Rodriguez. He didn't have a job, and we're praying week in and week out. We're all praying for him to find a job, find a job, find a job. And then he comes that, that particular Thursday and said, he talked to Jerry Edgar, Jerry talked to Alan, he met with Alan, he gets an interview, and now he's been hired, and he's going to be the soccer coach, he's going to teach uh, science. And it was like this audible response of the room of praise and thanksgiving because we, we had been praying with him, like bearing each other's burdens. It was incredible. Or I, I think of, I don't want to embarrass Hannah, but I, I remember one night we were having discussion group and so many people were praying for our adoption. And this particular night we, we started praying, I think Bo Beck started, which he typically started, and then Hannah started to pray. And I remember, I know exactly where I was sitting, on the left side of the Fierro's upstairs. And I remember thinking, oh man, this is going to be good because Hannah doesn't pray for often. I think this is going to be good. That was, that was my thought in my head. This is going to be good. And then it was good. Keeping she, score. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be good. And then she started praying for us. And it was, it was just like Aww. so powerful, so moving, praying for, for, for a child. And, and we left that night so lifted, so encouraged. And if, if we don't go, we're robbing ourselves so much of this massive encouragement that we so desperately need. I mean, the body of Christ is a gift, and we need each other so bad. And we, I just feel like we could be doing this. I feel like I could be doing this better. Like the today is not just Sundays. I know now with COVID-19, but we really need to be, the importance of encouraging each other is massive in our Christian lives. There's an urgency there. You know, we don't know that we're going to have tomorrow. And of course, everybody in here pretty much is young, so, but we don't. So there's today, while it's today, while the word of God is fresh on your mind, exhort one another. And just going back to this drifting idea, verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And just our hearts, every one of our hearts naturally gravitates towards hardness. It's just that's the way it is. Living in the fallen world, Romans 7, you know, every time I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. And if I'm not fighting my flesh, then I am hardening to my flesh. I, I am becoming deceived by the deceitfulness of my sin, and uh, it clouds my view of reality. Uh, it is like being in a fog, and you wake up, and you know, you, maybe you haven't, you haven't had a quiet time in a while, and you have a real quiet time, like a legitimate time with the Lord in prayer, and you come out of that quiet time, and everything looks different. Uh, you, you see your grumbling, awful spirit of the last week, and you're like, what has been wrong with me? And why haven't I been grateful? And why haven't I been treating people so just disrespectfully or in a mean sort of way, even if it's sort of passive-aggressive, sort of, you know, we have different ways of being, being that way. But it's like you come out of that time with the Lord, and it's just the world is different. Uh, you go outside, and you literally, nature is, is richer. I mean, really, literally, you sense the, the, the greatness of God and the beauty of God. And that's a daily thing. Every day we, we need to be fighting the deceitfulness of sin and the hardness of our hearts. That fighting, too, is not other people. Right. It's fighting us inside our hard hearts, our tendency to want to harden our hearts. Yes, yes, absolutely. The fight is against our own, our own flesh. One more thing on, on verse 4. Let me just read verse 14 again. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
it's, it's sort of like, it's not how you start the Christian life necessarily, it's how you end the Christian life. And like you and I have talked about just seeing pastors that we grew up watching and sort of seeing them stumble and fall. It's just sort of tragic to see some of it. Like you, you mentioned last week, one guy that would just, it made me, kept me up at night when, when I read his post that he'd fallen. It's, it's, we, want to, we want to persevere to the end and we want the joy of ending well. I think uh, we should think of the joy of finishing well. Like we want to be faithful to the end. I'm just thinking more and more of faithfulness to the end. We're not promised tomorrow, but we want to be faithful all the way to the end by the grace of God, all, all the days he, he gives us. And I think about different kings in, in, the, in the Old Testament. I don't know if you've, you guys read maybe First and Second Kings or Chronicles, and you read through these kings, and so many are bad. And I don't know if you're like me, but you're thinking, is this guy going to be a good or bad king? And you're hoping he's going to be a good, and it's another <laughs> bad king, another bad king. And occasionally there's a good king. But then there was King Asa, who just started so well. He did so many things right. 36 years of his 41-year reign, he did so well. But the last five years, he just sort of just crumbles to bits, and it's just sort drifted. of drifted away. And he, like, he gets uh, crippled in his legs, and he refuses to turn to the Lord. It's just it's heartbreaking to read. He refuses to turn to the Lord. He goes to, to physicians. So I just think, I love how we have in church history people who have just finished well. We have, we have these examples of people who finished well. I love Jab Packer, who's 93 years old, going to be 94 next month. He said, as far as our bodily health allows, we should aim to be found running the last lap of the race of our Christian life as we would say, flat out. The final sprint, so I urge, should be a sprint indeed. And I just, I don't want to embarrass Fred, but I'm just thinking, I thought about Fred, like, thinking about this. Here's Fred, he's not in his 90s, but he's in his 70s. He's in his 70s, but Fred is running. He's sprinting to the end, and what is he doing? Like, he doesn't have to do all this, but he's studying Hebrews. He's spending time, he's, he's soaking in the text out of love for the, for the people of God here. I mean, it's moving to see an example like this. Here's a guy who's racing to the end with joy. He, he's, he's running harder and harder. And I, I, if God gives me length of days like Fred, I want to be like this man, uh, studying the Bible when I have my, still have my brain going strong. I want to be like this guy, soaking in, in the Bible. Uh, I mean, it's just a gift that, to our church yes. th that he is. Thank you. Yes, absolutely you, true. Um, and so, uh, as we look at this, as we kind of shift into these next sections here, um, well, I'll be frank here, the, the author has some severe things to say. The, the warnings in Hebrews are serious, and they are um, worth spending serious time thinking about. Okay, so I think I said this a couple weeks ago, but I, I have to repeat this. Uh, we have a very cheap view of what conversion is in the South. Yes. Across the board. Not every individual, but just generally speaking. And, I mean, if you grew up like I did, or, or if you're older than me, you, you've grown up in a culture where it's very easy to become a Christian. You, 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 you say a prayer at the end of a meeting, you come forward, uh, you pray with the pastor, and you get baptized, and then you're in. And you'll have stories where a mother has, you know, an older mother has a son who's in his 40s, who's, I mean, literally, like maybe he's on his fourth marriage, he's been, he's been uh, convicted for multiple felonies, he's committed drug offenses multiple times, he's in prison currently, but the mother says, but I know he trusted Christ because when he was eight, he prayed at youth camp. Now, I mean, I, I'm not, I, that, is, that is a sad kind of theology that we have because it cheapens what conversion is, and it treats everybody like they're basically, if you're in the South, then you probably prayed the prayer when you were a kid somewhere, somewhere at a VBS or youth camp, and therefore everybody, you're, you're in, the once saved, always saved, right, the most abused statement I've ever heard. Um, it's technically true, but so misunderstood, and this, the author of Hebrews will not let us have a cheap view of conversion. What he's about to do, and this is severe, but it's, this is from what he said, he is going to compare the Christian life to what happened after the Exodus. So you, so you follow the comparison. 
You have this group of millions escape under the blood of the Lamb, cross over the Red Sea, which, I mean, yeah, the Red Sea, which Paul calls a baptism in 1 Corinthians 10. They were baptized into Moses at the Red Sea. So it's a, it's a picture of baptism. They cross over, which represents beginning their new life as a nation. They head into the wilderness, and they've got 40 years in the wilderness, which is our life once we become a Christian before we reach the promised land, right? We're, we're, we're heading toward the new Jerusalem, the new creation. We're right now in the, in the wilderness, and we, are, we have escaped Egypt, right? That's the obvious metaphor between the two events. And the, the moral application he draws is frankly frightening. In fact, look at 4.1. He uses the word fear. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Some translations get rid of the word fear, but that is the word for, where we get the word phobia. Phobeo, I think is the Greek word. The word for fear. We are to fear lest we fall short of salvation. Who's he talking to? He's talking to a group of people who have left their old life behind. They've professed faith in Jesus. They have outwardly, at least apparently, been converted. They've been, no doubt, baptized, chapter 6. They've been baptized. They're in the church. They're in the church, and they're following Jesus right now. Some of them are being persecuted. And he writes to that group and says, don't forget the Old Testament story. What was the percentage of people who left Egypt under the blood of the Lamb, escaped slavery, were baptized in the Red Sea? Uh, what percentage of those two million made it into the promised land, into the rest? A answer, 99.9 did not make it. So he says, listen, just because you have what appears to be a past conversion and you've been baptized and joined a church, that does not guarantee you go into the new heavens and new earth. That's the comparison. And the comparison is actually the overwhelming majority in the story he's using failed to make it. And if you don't see this, look with me here at verse 15, and you'll see how clearly he makes this point. Verse 15, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was this just like a bunch of, you know, pagans, a bunch of pagan peoples? No. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses. Those are pretty good credentials. I left Egypt led by Moses. That's pretty good evidence that you trust the Lord. And yet they proved they did not trust the Lord. They fell in the wilderness. Verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Keep going, 4.1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us phobeo, let us have phobia, let us, have, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, I, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now just pause here. The author of Hebrews will not let us have a cheap view of conversion. So the idea that you pray a prayer, once saved, always saved, don't worry, live like the world, the flesh, and the devil for the rest of your life, don't worry, you're going to heaven, he would say that is not just not true, it's dangerously, eternally dangerously te uh, false teaching that, that that would be. And I know I'm being pretty negative tonight, but the passage is pretty intense. I don't know what to do. So, so just, just this 
going to be even more severe. But just, I think one of the most dangerous teachings that our church, that the church, not our church, but the church has had in America in the last century has been this belief of easy believism. Uh, cheap conversion, cheap grace. This idea that you say something, you walk an aisle, and you're in no matter what. And this author, he won't let that stand. And he says, listen, this is why we must fight our sin daily. Because if we stop fighting our sin, what happens first is we start having a hard heart. And that shows itself with a grumbling attitude. And the grumbling attitude doesn't stop there. It gets worse and worse, like a disease. It just keeps breeding. It grows worse. And what happens over time is the grumbling attitude turns into outright rebellion against the living God. And eventually, it leads to an abandonment of the Christian faith, if it is not curtailed. Now, if someone were to walk in right now and not know our church, they would say, you, you think we can lose our salvation. That's what you just said. You just said you can become a Christian and lose your salvation. No, and the author of Hebrews does not believe that. And let me show you two verses in the text. 3.6, real quick. Turn back to 3.6. Go to that next full sentence in the, toward the end, middle of the verse. And we are, present tense, his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, do you, do you hear that? We are presently part of God's house, his people, if we hold our confidence fast to the end. Now look, look at verse 14 of chapter th 3. Same idea. Almost the same statement. For we have come, that's present, right? We have come. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's the perseverance. Yes, this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and it is articulate. Listen, both verses say the same thing. You are now in Christ if you hold fast to the end. Say it backwards. You are not currently in Christ today if you don't hold fast to the end. So the, the perseverance to the end is the proof of whether you're a Christian right now. Do you see? Again, again, I won't say his name, but the pastor that you talked about that I used to read his books who renounced the Christian faith. Again, he said on, he divorced his wife. He said on Instagram, I'm divorcing my wife. And he said, by every, he used to be a pastor. He was a pastor for 15 or so years. He used to listen to his sermons to get help. And then he says, by every definition I know of what a Christian is, I am not a Christian. And he was sitting at a gay pride parade eating a, a rainbow donut. Mm. That's for real. This is a guy, I used to read his books. Like, people I respect endorsed him. He spoke at conferences. I've benefited from his sermons in the past. I can quote you things he said that were very helpful. Uh, he, he was liked by all the guys you know and like. Uh, he was in that realm. He was part of the Gospel Coalition board member. What, you know, all these things, he had all these titles. And uh, he says, by everything I know a Christian is, I am no longer a Christian. And he's sitting there eating a rainbow gay pride uh, donut at a gay pride event. And he's left his wife. Now, I would have bet money he was a believer. I, I followed his ministry for about 15 years. I, I would have bet money he was a Christian. I, I think most people who knew him would have said he's definitely a believer. And what happened was, and I don't, I don't know, I can't read his heart, but he, I can tell you what happened objectively. He left pastoring his church, and he went to a seminary in another country. He went to Canada, and he and his wife detached from their local church, and they got around a little bit more of a loose environment. And over the next four years, I was following him on social media. He started saying more and more bizarre things. Like he had a video, I won't even say it, but it was just weird. He was posting stuff that was not really holy. It was like, why are you saying that? And then his wife and he, he, they both became more and more strange for four years. And it got worse and worse. And then finally he says, I'm not marrying my, I'm leaving my wife. I'm not a Christian. And um, the answer is not that he lost his salvation. We have come to share in Christ. We are believers today 
if we hold fast to the end. To what we had. To what to we be, had. And if we don't hold fast, we weren't a Christian back when we thought we were. That, that's what's going on here. And so that man who I wish would repent, he is showing evidence, unless something were to dramatically change today, he is showing very clear evidence that he never was a believer. That he was a false convert even when I was listening to and taking notes on his sermons. I remember, I just remember things he's taught me that were very helpful about church membership and about when I was single, dealing with singleness issues and dealing with all kinds of He was very helpful. And, and, and I, I went to one of his conferences. I stood right next to him after a breakout session. He's standing right next to me with a backpack on. He did lay hands on you? He did not lay hands on me. But like, <laughs> what's going on here is he did not lose his salvation. He is bearing witness that he did not have Christ 10 years ago because he's not persevering today. And so this is not cheap grace that we're talking about. This is a fight, and, and if we're genuine believers, we will, by the grace of God, fight our sin. We will not always win every moment, but we will really fight our sin. We will not live in unrepentant sin. Christian sin. We can't live in it. We can't. The, the new nature and the Holy Spirit won't let us. And if we are comfortable in our sin and we are living in it, indulging it, and following our sin, we should have verse, chapter 4, verse 1. We should fear lest we should seem to fall short of eternal life. We should have an actual fear growing if we're living in sin and indulging it with unrepentance going on for a period of time, we should have an increasing fear, do I really know the Lord? Because the evidence of faith is not just repentance, but as Luther said, you know, when Jesus said repent, he didn't just say a one-time repent, it was a lifelong, lifelong continuing repentance. And John the Baptist writes, said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So a new nature will be a lasting nature. It's not a perfect nature, but it's an abiding and lasting thing. And that's why this fight is so significant, because this fight shows whether the Holy Spirit has transformed the heart or whether we're still ultimately following the ways of, of our flesh. Well, I think you see this a lot, or you've seen this a lot, not just in, in Baptist churches, or, but in mainline Protestant denominations, which have drifted you know, in the last 40, 50 years, and they've split over some same-sex marriage issues and that type of thing. And, uh, of course, most of those churches had infant baptism. So that, with some of them, you were regenerated with infant baptism. And then along came, uh, I guess, eventually confirmation. So that was to confirm what you were supposed to have gotten when you were baptized. And... But we know, and I know, because I came up in that environment, you know, I, 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 it, didn't, it didn't take. I, I didn't know Jesus uh, at that point. I mean, I, I could have recited all the creeds and prayers and stuff like that. But So there's a false security, no different than walking the aisle in the Baptist church or Billy Graham crusade or that type of thing. Uh, there's a false um, I should fear, <laughs> if that's my background. Yeah, uh, let me just read ver verse 1 of chapter 4 again. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And I, I love what one, one person said that, uh, he said, I have a stake in the spiritual affairs of others. This is not an invitation for destructive meddling, but for the mutual building up that is to define life in the church. We ought to take careful note of members who may be drifting and then pray with them and for them. We are constantly looking for spiritual 
stragglers. And I'll use this illustration, which I used on when we did a video, I think, on Hebrews 12, of, and it, it became, it was circling again because of Father's Day recently, but 1992 Olympics, some of you may know this story. There was a runner, Derek Redmond, from Great Britain. He was running in the 400-meter race. It was the semifinal race, and, the, and he took off running, and about halfway through, or not even quite halfway through, he, I think he tore his hamstring, so he, he comes up lame, and he just kind of crumbles there. Every, all the other racers finish. He gets up, and he's trying to, to go to the finish line, but he's having terrible trouble going to the finish line. His father comes out of the stands. It's so moving. It makes me cry. Watching that video, his father comes beside him, grabs him, puts his arm around him. His son is crying on his shoulder, and he carries him basically all the way, like walks with him as his son limps to the finish line. I thought, this is how the church should be. Like, we should be on the lookout when people are struggling. We, we stop. We come back. We grab hold of them. We pray with and for them. And for me, with the book club guys, some of my favorite nights have been people saying that they're struggling with certain things. And we just pray with these guys. Yes. We all come around. Sometimes we even put hands, I think, on, on guys that are struggling. And, we, and just the love that's in that room. Like, we don't want you to be struggling. We want to help you. We want to get you going in the right direction. There just should be this mutual concern for the, for the people of God that we when someone hasn't been in community for a while, there should be this loving reaching out of saying, you know, I haven't seen you, everything, anything I can pray for you. Like, we need to be doing that because so many of us can be drifting that we have this responsibility corporately. Even it's like a pastoral care of, of all the members for each other and how we can help each other run. Yeah, just, I, I, I want to, we're saying some pretty severe things tonight, but what Scott's saying is exactly right. The attitude with which we deal with someone struggling, because it's going to be me, right? It's going to be you. It's going to be everybody at different times. Right? I mean, not everyone has a great day spiritually every day. My goodness. And, and there, there are times where we deliberately begin to choose to indulge our flesh in whatever way it might be. There's a hundred ways that could look like. And then that's when we need people around us to be gracious and speak truth. Uh, and let me just, graciousness doesn't mean lying. Oftentimes we think being gracious means telling people something nicer than the truth, right? What we think is nicer, kinder than God. No, no, graciousness is speaking the truth in love, right? Ephesians, uh, speak the truth in love with, with, like Scott, with tears in the eyes, with genuine affection for the person as, they're, as you see some wandering or as they see wandering in me, to, to have that tenderness with the truth, to say, I love you too much to ignore this. Because love doesn't, indifference to, to other people struggling is not love. Love says, I'm going to be a little bit annoying to this person. I'm going to pursue them. They're not going to want to have me call them. They're not going to want to have me text them. They're not going to want to get coffee with me because they know what's probably coming, even if it's going to be gracious. They don't want to hear the truth right now. And that's why they need to hear the truth. And that's why I do when I'm straying or struggling. I need to hear the truth in those moments when I especially don't want it. And so the, the, the tears and the compassion, not the severity of tone, needs to be present when, when those conversations are happening. Absolutely. I remember the old days in Fight Club. We would put the chair out in the middle of the room and we would seat someone in the chair who had an issue and, and lay hands on them, pray over them. And uh, yeah, it's powerful. Fred, uh, Fight Club was a men's Bible study, if anyone's concerned about what that was. <laughs> Fred and I were not boxing back then. It, it was a ring. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly right. Which I just throw this at, sometimes it's just simply asking a question, like out of genuine concern, how are you doing spiritually? That could be just opening up 
having the other person just open up about how they really are and just being honest with the answer of someone who cares about. Even if you're, if you're married, I feel like you, you should, if you're struggling, why not tell your spouse? Like, they're going to pray, they're praying for you anyway. Why not just open up and just say, you know, I'm not doing well spiritually. I need time. Like, having that with husband and wife is, is huge, but just being honest with each other when you are struggling. I remember when the COVID-19 thing first happened, I think you asked all the elders, like, how we were all doing spiritually, and almost everybody just said it was tough. Like, we're all, and I'm just so glad that we got to talk about it and, like, pray over it, because we were all just not doing great, just missing the body. So just sometimes just asking one question, how, how are you doing spiritually can help. Yeah, I had a, a, a pastor friend who's in town, um, Marty Jacobs, some of you guys know Marty. I love Marty. Marty called me up, and he's like, how are you doing spiritually? And I was like, you know, Marty, not good. I'm just, I'm just like apathetic. I'm, I'm irritable. I'm not, I don't have a desire to pursue the Lord. This was just a few weeks ago. So you're welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're just going to come clean here. I was you just like, I was like, in the chair? The, the, yeah, I need to. The, 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 whole, the whole COVID thing and the out of rhythm thing, I just was just in this place where I was irritable. I was complaining. I was not pursuing the Lord like I should. I was, I, I, I got the whole thing about the social media stuff because I was absorbed with it in t- like just deeply at the time, like reading all this stuff and I wasn't reading spiritually minded things. I was just thinking in a worldly way and he called me. He's like, how you doing? I was like, I'm just numb. And so uh, he talked to me for a while and was, that was a helpful turning point for me, having him on the phone telling me that. So you need to have that person you can say that to, to say, things are not, like, I don't feel like things are good. I don't really want to read my Bible. My prayer life is almost non-existent today. Like, I'm I'm not thinking that way, and help me. And it it was so helpful. There's, Marty's a guy who just does this for me all the time. I think Tyler would say the same thing. He'll he'll just call me up and be like, how you doing? No, how you doing really? And I'm like, how dare you ask that question? (laughs) He's like, how you doing, pastor? I'm like, how dare you? Uh, so, um, but no, he, he, people like that who could just kind of get in your face with love, he, I know he cares about me, and he's not going to like, he's going to speak truth, but he's not going to be like judgmental in the way he talks, but he's going to speak truth and remind me of grace and push me toward, toward Jesus. And he's done it to me numerous times, but for me just a couple weeks ago, he was a huge help uh, just being real on the phone with him. So you got to find people And we like need that. to be that way with each other, yes. as you pointed out, so. I don't know if it's a psalm or a proverb where I think David says that he has no one that cares for his soul or something like that. Some psalm, well, the, the, guy that, the guy that first discipled dad was a guy named Don Lanier. He's still living. He's in his 80s, and he just poured into my dad, and he took him to that verse, and he said, you can never say this about yourself, like that you don't have anybody that cares for your soul because he cared so deeply about his soul. I feel like no member of our church should be able to say that. Like, we should care about everybody in that church. We shouldn't, no one should ever be able to say, nobody cares about my soul. We should deeply care about how the well-being, the spiritual well-being of the, of the people of God in our church. Amen. Okay, let's continue here. Okay, now, are everybody ready? Because we're shifting gears slightly. It's the same topic, but uh, we've been going for like 45, 50 minutes, and the next 10, 15 minutes before we finish is going to involve thinking, which is, this is the worst time in a message to demand careful thinking, because if you're like me, this is the point where your brain just starts turning to goo. So stick with us here. Um, we're going to, it's going to take a little thinking. It's a little bit complex of an argument. And let me, let me, before I read it, let me just give you like a brief version of what I think he's trying to say, and then when we read it, maybe you can start to see it a little bit. Okay, so I don't even know if I can explain this properly. So, ready? So the, the Exodus event that's being described happens in the 1440s BC. This is not going to end well. <laughs> this psalm is written 400 years later. Okay, so, so get the psalm itself is 400 years after the coming into the promised land. Okay, 
And here's what he's seeing in the psalm. The psalm, 400 years after Joshua and Moses, 400 years after the Jericho thing and the crossing the Jordan River, 400 years after that, David is talking about this. Don't be like that generation from 400 years ago who rebelled and failed to enter God's rest. Instead, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart so that you can, the implication is so that you can enter God's rest. Today, 400 years afterwards. And, and here's what the, the author of Hebrews is now writing a thousand years after that. You got this? And he's looking back, reading the psalm very carefully. And he's going, what was David getting at? David is giving them an offer of rest today, in his day. They already had the rest. The rest is the promised land. David's writing it from the promised land. He's in the capital of the promised land. He's in Jerusalem. I mean, yes, there's enemies. There's Philistines, and there's like the Goliath thing. There's stuff like that. But they're at rest. They're in the place of rest, the promised land. So what is David doing offering further rest when they already have rest? Do you see the problem? Now, this author of Hebrews is not careless. People sometimes say that the author of Hebrews is careless with the Old Testament. I'm like, are you kidding me? He's the most careful imaginable. We're just not careful. That's why we think he's not careful, because we're not reading carefully. The author of Hebrews looks back to the psalmist and says, okay, if Joshua gave them rest in our land, why is David later offering them further rest? And the only answer must be Joshua and the rest he offered wasn't the ultimate rest. There has to be a greater rest. And if you know, you may know this about Greek and Hebrew, the Hebrew word Joshua is the Greek word Jesus, Jesus. So in Greek, when he says in verse eight of chapter four, if Joshua had given them rest, it, in Greek it's the word Jesus. I just looked at it today. For if Jesus could give them, if Jesus, if G Joshua could give them, so there's clearly a Joshua Jesus typology going on here, not, not just, so. The, the author of Hebrews says, this theme of rest goes beyond the promised land. And the way, I, the way he knows that is because the rest of God, my rest, started before Joshua was born. It started in Genesis 2-2. On the seventh day, God rested from the work, right? And since that day, there's been an offer of entering God's Sabbath rest, right? And the promised land is a foreshadowing of final rest in Jesus. And David somehow understood this by the guiding of the Spirit. David saw this when he's writing a thousand years BC. David goes, the rest Joshua offered, if you didn't harden your heart, pointed to a greater rest still available today. And that's what the author of Hebrews is picking up on. Fred, a comment before we read well, it. Just a thought, back to 4.3, is, is that not what, although uh, his works were finished from the foundation of the world means also yes. that there is a, a rest over yonder yes. that we've not yet eschatologically or yes. shalom wise or yes absolutely okay so let's refer could you read it for us can you read three through thirteen sure for we who have believed entered that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. Can I stop right there for a second? You know, I, this came to me the other day. You know, the, the, 
verses were added, chapters were added in 13th century verses, I think 16th century, something like that. So when he says somewhere, he's got a scroll, this massive scroll. He, I mean, he probably knows that it's Genesis, but anyway, so that's an, appro that, that's an appropriate comment. Uh, anyway, um, where was I? Okay, five. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore remains, it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying that through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, Yeshua, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so that, that verse 12, which is so well known, you know, the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. That is not just like a pearl on a string. That's the conclusion of a two-chapter long argument. And he's thinking about Psalm 95 specifically. And he's saying, the Spirit says today, right? The word of the Lord is that living and active. Because the Spirit is speaking today. When I read an old psalm, it's the Spirit now. It's alive and active. And then he says, it discerns the intentions of the, what? Heart. Has a heart been a theme of Psalm 95? Verse 6, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10 of chapter 3, they always go astray in their hearts. Chapter, uh, verse 12, unbelieving heart. And on it goes. Chapter 4, verse... Uh, Oh, I don't even know where they all are. Verse uh, Somewhere 7. It's Somewhere it's written. <laughs> Do not harden your heart. So he's taken that word heart from Psalm 95 and said it over, 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 over. And he goes, okay, by the way, the word is living and active because the God who wrote it a thousand years ago is still speaking it in the present tense today. And it will expose your heart. That unbelieving heart, the heart that's tempted to fall away from the living God. The, the, the scriptures of the Old Testament, by the way, he's not unhitching here. This is Old Testament. This is God speaking now, living active to help us with our heart. And so that verse is not just a nice little verse that just kind of pops out of nowhere. It's the conclusion of two chapters of explaining Psalm 95. And, and it just flows right into Psalm 95 can help us deal with our heart today. Because God's word is, is living and active. No, I mean... I think you've, you've done a great job. I mean, this is, this is so hard. I mean, this is uh, Mark's giftedness coming out right now. I know he's not going to want me to say this, we but don't I, need to go there, Scott. the complicated truth down. Like, I've listened to so much on this, and Mark just did. It would take me months to even come close to that. But I'll just say that when, what Mark just did for me just now is he's getting me excited about the Bible. Doesn't he, isn't that getting you excited about the Bible, about the author of Hebrews, the way he's reading Psalm 95? You just think of how we read so sur surface level, and there, there's, rich, there's so many riches there available in the Bible. I'm just excited to even dive in again soon. Like, just the way you've talked about the Bible, the way he sees the Bible, the way he's thought carefully about the Bible. What a wealth of, of, of treasure we have here, and we just don't dive deep like we, like we should. So I'm just excited about, about the Bible, just from some of the things that we've talked about tonight. Especially, especially just looking at 12 in that context. I hadn't really thought about it. Uh, I mean, I, know, I knew where it was. I just 
as you explained it. So uh, we're almost we're coming close to the to the end here. So what what I love is you have the author is seeing a development of a theme in scripture. It's not just a verse. It's a theme that runs through the entire, it's like a, like rebar or whatever it's called in concrete, you know, just goes through the whole thing and holds it together. Uh, Is that what it's called, rebar? The metal things? I don't, I know nothing about that. So uh, to hold the concrete together, help it not fall apart. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Um, You have have these, these things that run through the Bible from beginning and these themes that hold the thing together, and there's dozens of them. But one of them is the theme of, of rest or Sabbath rest. And I know we did a sermon on Sabbath a few months ago, but I won't repeat that. But basically, God rests from his work, so God is in rest. And then the rest of the Bible after the fall, remember that was the one day where everything was perfect, the seventh day? Because we don't hear about an eighth day. All we know is the serpent shows up. So for all we know, the only day we know was perfect was that first, was that first Sunday, right? That, that, uh, excuse me, first Saturday. Got to get that Saturday. right. But th- that day was the perfect day of rest where God's people were at rest with the Lord. And then after that, everything falls apart. And God brings his people into the land of rest to give us a picture of foreshadowing of the new Jerusalem and the new creation, the true promised land. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, um, you, you burdened, you weary, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. And remember, that's Matthew 11, the end of 11. The very next verse is, is Jesus in a Sabbath controversy. Remember? And they're saying, you're violating the Sabbath. And his basic response is, I am the Sabbath. If you want to find rest, don't find it there. Find it here. I'm the Sabbath rest. And then the author of Hebrews sees that this idea of fighting our hard hearts, being softened in heart so that we can be with Jesus, allows us to find rest here and now, today, right? We can find rest, but ultimately this is a foretaste of the final rest, the new creation rest. It's not just resting from work once a week. This is eternal rest, which there will be work to do, but it will be work done in the joyous rest of the Lord's presence. And so ultimately that, the theme of Sabbath starts, the theme of Sabbath rest starts early in Genesis, runs through the entirety of the Bible, and at the end of the Bible, here we are at rest with God forever in a new creation. And the promised land was a wonderful uh, picture of what that was going to be like, although it was flawed in many ways. And so, yeah, that, that's his sort of way of putting it together. Can, can we just quickly turn to the Matthew 11 text and we can close sure. on that? Matthew 11. So I want to ask Fred to read it in a moment, but um, as you're turning to the end of Matthew 11, so just just put this offer on the table. So maybe you are in that spot where you're feeling spiritually drained. You feel like I felt a few weeks ago when I was on the phone with Marty, like I don't want to read my Bible. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but uh, I don't want to. That moment, maybe that's where you're at. I mean, you're here on a Tuesday night, so you're probably not in that place, but maybe you are. And if that's, if that's where you are, he, just hear these words as an offer on the table for you and me uh, right now. Fred, can you, read, uh, can you read 25 to 30? Sure. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray the word of the Lord. Father, I, as I read those very words, I, I need that rest. Uh, Mark's not alone in, in his struggle sometimes with uh, the need for rest. And, and I mean that spiritual rest, that assurance that we have uh, uh, in our hearts, because uh, that's where the, the conflict often is between our heart and our, and our minds. And, uh, and thank you, Father, for the offer of that rest. Thank you for Jesus and, and for his life. Thank you that he was made in every respect just like us so he would know what it was like to, to be human, to suffer, to taste death on our behalf, to give his body for our sins and, and propitiation and to take away uh, your wrath, uh, God's wrath, and then to die on a Roman cross, brutally executed, and then rise again on the third day. Uh, then ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, interceding for us uh, at this very moment that we're praying here, that he's interceding and the Spirit is interceding uh, on our behalf. So thank you, Father, for that truth and for the rest that we so desperately need through your Son. In his mighty name, amen.